Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Sophie McIntosh on her latest novel, Cursed Bread. Sophie McIntosh is the author of three novels, The Water Cure, Blue Ticket, and her latest, which we're going to talk about today, Cursed Bread. Her debut novel, The Water Cure, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2018 and won a Betty Trask Award in 2019. She has been published in Granta, The White Review, and Tank Magazine, among others. Sophie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, it's lovely to be back. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. So it's a kind of loosely historical novel. I kind of talk of it in terms of historical speculation because it is really, really loosely based on a true story, but mainly the focus is on um, the relationship that the main character, um, the baker's wife in a small town in 1951, in France in 1951, and the relationship she has with two uh, newcomers to the town. She kind of quickly develops an obsession with them, and so it kind of follows her relationship with them against the backdrop of a true historical event, which is a mass poisoning of a French village where all the inhabitants suffered hallucinations. And so we spoke about both of your previous books, and they were both speculative fiction. And what we talked about both times, and we'll do again now, is is your very distinct style in which you don't give that much away about the actual setting. And it sort of unfolds over the course of the book for us, but never with any sort of like real specifics. And I did wonder going into this one, knowing that it was based on an actual historical event, how you would do that. And you do again, and it's wonderful. And you you drip feed clues through the book as to, you know, when it is, if you care about that, like if we care about what the actual historical setting is. But at the same time, it also feels like anywhere place out of time at the same time, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think I love just kind of leaning into that ambiguity and the sense of kind of uncanniness and unreality it gives to something, even with something that's a real event, or, you know, based on something real. I think I just I wanted to kind of almost give it that layer of yeah, uncanniness, um, kind of make it a story that wasn't just about that event in particular, but kind of something timeless that could have happened at any time. Um, something kind of yeah, I guess outside of genre and outside of historical fiction. So tell us something about the actual real event that it's based on. Although, as I said, it's it's very different from what actually happened. But tell us 
something about the original event. So in 1951, in the town of Pont Saint-Esprit in South France, there was a mass poisoning event. Yeah, most of the town kind of fell ill with hallucinations. Um, it was quite a tragedy. Some people died and lots of people kind of committed to hospital and asylums. And the main thing that sort of really grabbed me, apart from the idea of this, you know, whole town being overtaken by mysterious hallucinations, was the idea that it never kind of definitively been proved what happened. Um, and there was quite a lot of theories around it. And they call it the case of Le Pan Maudit, the curse bread, hence the title, um, because the most likely theory is that it was kind of poisoned, contaminated flour, which is poisoned with ergot fungus. Um, which led to a kind of well, symptoms similar to LSD and hence the hallucinations. But there were also theories such as like there was a CIA mind control experiment pre-Cold War. And these theories were kind of the ones that somehow gripped me more. And I thought like, you know, what something can be done kind of merging the two almost. So we have like, you know, the baker's wife is the main um, narrator of the story. But we also have the ambassador, who's a kind of American character who could feasibly kind of be involved in this thing. So, yeah, kind of like leaning into those feelings of superstition, going with a theory that sounds quite outlandish, but um, I thought it was like a really right place for kind of exploration, especially in the context of like the Second World War and, you know, the kind of trauma of that and what, how that would have affected the village and, you know, especially a town like quite insular. Um, so I kind of was them playing with those ideas a bit. And I think this is the the genius of that idea that you've got a very modern idea, which is this sort of, you know, MK Ultra type secret experiment to, to mass poison a population and watch what happens. At the same time with this ergot poisoning thing, which is a, a thing that makes it seem like out of time, because that's a thing that may be responsible for like many various different mass hysterias throughout, you know, European history and witchcraft and things like, you know, witch hunts and things like that. But the idea of sort of mixing those two ideas together, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I kind of, the more I was reading about the case, um, I was reading kind of around it, and I was just really fascinated as well by like, I suppose there's something about bread, isn't there? There's something so fundamental about bread, especially in French culture. Like it's such a symbol of French culture. Don't really have a meal without bread. It's a kind of, you know, the baguette is like a, like a symbol of kind of national pride. And I was reading about, you know, bread production at the time. And the flour supply was actually like quite heavily controlled by the state. It was very linked to the state. Like bakers kind of had the allocation and it was regulated quite heavily. So that idea of like, you know, contamination happening under that circumstance of, you know, maybe a baker who wanted to bake a better loaf and was kind of frustrated by what he was allocated, um, kind of taking matters into his own hands. You know, it's also kind of was reading about bread in the context of, you know, American kind of food as well, where it was a lot kind of techniques were a bit more modern and industrial. So that idea of kind of wanting to borrow some of that modernity kind of really appealed to me. But so there's a kind of element of this, you know, very fairy tale like element of, you know, the, this humble bread, the perfect bread, this kind of um, sacrament of bread, this church, you know, church and state and bread, all these things that kind of felt like very everyday and intertwined, but almost like kind of holy. And then this idea of the kind of contamination and turning this food stuff into something like really quite you know, devastating. That was like that was something that kind of really interested me as well. And it did feel kind of fairy tale like in that sense of transformation. Tell us something more about Elodie, who is our, our main character. Who is she? Elodie is the baker's wife and she's a character who's kind of quite unsatisfied with her a lot. Um she's quite bored and she doesn't feel very fulfilled. 
that she's kind of right before um, intrigue when the new couple arrives and she kind of sees in them everything that she doesn't have. She sees a marriage that has desire in it. She sees kind of glamour and excitement and it's something she's felt like she's never really had. Um, and so she kind of, it's easy for her to break um, start a friendship and sort of get drawn into their world and try and find a way into it. She's also someone who's come from outside of the village originally. Tell us something about where she's come from. Yeah, so I kind of, I kept it sort of vague, but I imagined her coming from somewhere more rural. She's kind of lived around France. She's lived, it's implied, you know, in Paris. She's attempted this kind of glamour. She's like waitress. She's kind of done a, a few things, but she hasn't lived a life the way that, that Violet has or the way that she imagines Violet has. So she's always kind of been quite a like provincial person and hasn't really been sort of happy with her lot in life but I also I think it was you know she's quite a sophisticated voice in the book I think it was like it was really important for me to think about how you know even someone who we wouldn't think of as sophisticated necessarily could have this really rich inner life and why wouldn't it be possible for like a baker's wife in the 50s to you know ha- want these things and to have these dreams and to be actually like you know very clever and to be reading independently and you know finding things out and yeah she's always thirsty for gossip she just wants to know stuff and she's always kind of really pining for something else really always looking for something that will fulfill her one of the other things that gives this novel a timeless feel is we see glimpses of village life, which seems unchanged for centuries. Tell us something more about, you know, particularly about the um, the women around the lavoir doing the uh, the washing of the um, of the laundry. Tell us something about what village life is like. This is a funny one. A kind of you know researching a historical novel, which I've never had to do before, and you know, literally looking at things like, oh, do they have washing machines in like 50s France in this in a town? And it was like, no, they don't. They were still washing at the lavoir. So it'd be like a kind of almost like communal well in the village um, that would be set up with like a lovely, a lovely building, usually like a stone, often outside. And they'd be kind of running water from a stream or something. And it would be kind of, yeah, I imagined it as kind of this very, you know, feminine space where the husbands can't intrude and, you know, a lot of gossip can happen. It almost becomes like sort of this mystical, almost like witchy space even. So that became an important site where the women could kind of, I guess, be themselves and gossip and let themselves talk about, talk freely about Violet and about kind of their feelings about things. Um, Yeah, so that was kind of one element that I enjoyed. I guess it's it's like, it's from a real element, It's it's a real thing, but I guess, running with it a bit and making it this kind of mystical, more mystical element of the book. There's a really wonderful moment where all of the women try on Violet's clothes while they're washing them. Yeah, that moment I kind of, I just thought they're all kind of jealous of her in their own way, or if not jealous of her, they're very curious because she's such an outsider the way that Elodie is, well, in a different way really, but, you know, they're very, they're not part of the village. She's not part of the life that they recognise. Um, and there's almost this resentment so this scene where they kind of almost go into a trance and they try on her clothes and the clothes don't fit and they rip them and you know no one's kind of going to her to explain why why the clothes are ripped or anything Um, she just kind of would receive back this you know bag of ripped clothes and you know just she knows that they're kind of they're not on her side necessarily so um, that was just sort of a scene that I thought would kind of demonstrate for for us, you know, the sense of how much of an outsider she is and how much she's kind of sort of resented and sort of feared and seen as an object of, of mystery. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sophie McIntosh, and we're talking about her new novel, Cursed Bread. And Sophie, we we ended up there talking about Violet. So tell us something about Violet and the Ambassador and their arrival in the village. Yeah, so Violet and Ambassador are this very glamorous couple that come to the village. They're from America. They're actually I'm not even sure that's ever explicitly said. I think yeah, again, it's kind of part of that sort of timeless placeness thing but I think it becomes fairly obvious in kind of things they say but yes the glamorous couple who've arrived at the village no one's really sure what they're doing he has sort of different explanations for what they're doing he gets in with the men of the village and kind of you know makes himself their friend in a way tries to kind of get their confidence and stuff and whereas like Violet is more apart from the rest of them and sort of stays in their house and only really sees Elodie so much, only really involves herself with her. Um, so yeah, this idea of this very glamorous couple coming to this small town and trying to kind of get under the skin of it, I guess. And once they've come to the town, strange things start to happen all through the summer. There's a sense of the town kind of breaking down, things moving under the surface. It's funny because now you've said that, I have to admit, I, it never occurred to me that Violet might be American herself. So I obviously guessed that the... Um... Well, you state that the ambassador is. And I was going to say, so tell us, because she, as you said, like Elodie, is somebody who is an outsider. They all gossip about what she might have been before. So tell us something about what you imagined she was before. The funny thing was, I was I actually, I was I'm thinking about this because I wrote um, about half of the first draft through Violet's perspective. Like I wrote it kind of in her voice and I didn't end up going with that at the end. I wrote it through Elodie's perspective, but because it just 
writing it through her voice made it a lot more alive. And I think like Violet worked better as, as someone who was observed rather than an observer. And it was really interesting for me to kind of get into her character a bit and to realise, you know, that she is kind of, she's almost acts as a kind of cipher in the book. Like she's a person who doesn't really give her secrets away, even if she seems to. She's the person, I think, with like a lot to hide and someone with a kind of this sort of coldness inside them, a sort of emptiness and someone, I think, with like quite a sad, sad past. So all these, yeah, the women are kind of like, guessing at what she has done in the past but I don't actually feel like her life probably wasn't super different to Elodie's I think from a lot more privilege but um in terms of kind of drifting around beforehand and almost kind of being saved by love but in different ways obviously Elodie becomes someone who's like very distant from her husband and Violet seems to really love the ambassador release they've kind of they seem to be quite obsessed with each other with it with each other in certain ways yeah, it was kind of interesting to think of her as this kind of glamorous, mysterious person, but with this background of like quite dark and sad background. And when we think of this village as just being in any village anywhere at any time in history, we don't have this sort of very specific, when we think about, you know, the, the pasts that these people that come from outside of the village might have, when we know specifically that this is sort of post-war France 1951 sort of south of, you know, a, a village somewhere in sort of south-central France, we do sort of n- have an idea what some of these people might have been through. There has just been a war. Some of these people might have been involved in the war. But also, of course, some of these people might have been collaborators in the war, I guess. Mm. Yeah, that was kind of interesting to think about. the Because, I mean, 1951 really isn't long after the end of the war. There still would have been you know, damage in the town, like people would have died, people would have gone away. There would have been a lot of change. And it was interesting thinking about that in the context. I was writing it in lockdown and I started it just before lockdown and then, you know, finished it in lockdown. (laughs) And I think that sense of, I was thinking a lot, you know, about how collective trauma affects us, how it kind of affects our perception of reality and recollection of events and stuff. And I couldn't help, you know, but draw a bit of a parallel with, such a life-changing and world-changing event as, you know, the Second World War. Like, this is a, tra- this is a village of people who's, like, is still very traumatised and still kind of climatizing to a new life and are probably, like, you know, dealing with the ramifications still of rationing. It's something that's, like, always there for them that they're always having to think about. And, yeah, so the idea of then the kind of this other tragedy happening on top of this tragedy when there's still, you know, so much healing to be done and so much processing to be done and how... I guess how quickly something, how quickly sort of people can flip or how, you know, reality can kind of seem really turned on its head, especially when you're kind of just getting over something already. That was something I kind of wanted to explore. With bearing that in mind, there's an image of in the book, a legend in the village of the dead coming back one night a year on the river, on the frozen river. Where did that come from? I'm not really sure. I think it's just something about, yeah, the idea of, I guess ghosts not ever really leaving completely this idea because it's kind of repeated elsewhere in the book after kind of near the end and Elodie's kind of hallucinating the return of the Lavois even though she kind of doesn't go there anymore. This idea of I guess not letting go, not being able to let go of ghosts of the past or you know things you'd rather forget or you know things maybe you don't want to forget but that idea of um, the past kind of repeating and returning to us and we can't really forget it and it kind of won't forget us we witnessed through Elodie's eyes the relationship between Violet and the ambassador which 
seems quite sadomasochistic, I guess, through Elodie's eyes. And she's sort of drawn into that and becomes like a sort of almost a pawn between the two of them. Their motives are very different, I guess, as we find out later in the book, which we don't have to talk about now, obviously. But tell us something about this, her sort of desire getting caught up with this relationship between the two. I think if Elodie, she's very, yeah, her, like her marriage is very passionless. Um, she doesn't really feel desired or seen anymore. And I guess this kind of element of the sexual relationship between the ambassador and Violet, it's very kind of different to what she's experienced or maybe what she's even kind of considered in terms of what like romance could be. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a kind of pattern or a form of relationship. She's got any kind of, experience of but she can see kind of like the passion between them and she's kind of excited by this I suppose this newness and you know it's kind of quite visceral almost like violence between them which is like you know consensual and you know almost this, I think to her almost seems like sort of a different level or something else that she like something she doesn't understand like there's so much that she doesn't understand and she feels frustrated and shut out from and this kind of becomes another thing that she just wants to record she wants to understand she wants to observe and yeah I guess kind of be on that level and kind of be let into a secret really and you know all Violet tells us so much about the relationship but we're never sure you know how much he's actually embellishing how much she's like making up and Violet has her own observations of what she's seen and she can kind of fill in the blanks but I think this idea of it's like this mysteriousness of intimacy this mysteriousness of sex and especially when you're in a position where you feel really like left out of that or not in kind of touch with that passionate side of you and how that would manifest for her. And we've not mentioned the um the sort of narrative structure of the novel and in this half epistolary novel there are chapters set in a later time after the events of the um of the village and the mass poisoning where Elodie is writing to Violet writing her recollections writing her thoughts telling her you know her truth about what she thought about her from a position of after the events in a town by the sea. Tell us about this decision to split it into these two narrative paths. I wanted to have this sense of recollection and reflection for Violet. You know, she's been through this massive traumatic event and we're not really sure what it is until the end, but she's kind of at this place where she's trying to process it and recover, um, where she's she's living so much in her memories. She's, you know, ruminating so much. A lot of the a lot of the structure of the book is kind of narratively based on like rumination and going over things and remembering things and sort of misremembering them. Like you can never really completely know, I guess, how reliable a memory is, especially when you, you know you can try and fix it in your head, but there's always going to be things that kind of slip out of your grasp or you change your perspective on. So this sense of just her having distance from the actual event while we actually we see the actual events happening in one narrative, but then this idea of her having a new perspective and just really trying to make sense. And we're there with her trying to make sense and trying to kind of put the pieces in place. Again, it's the idea of her just like really trying to understand and just wanting to know, you know, what has happened, like what has happened to her, how she should move forward with it. And the letters are her kind of way of processing it and us kind of processing that with her. And to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yep. I'm just going to read from the beginning. When I recall the first time I met Violet, it embarrasses me. I hold the memories up to the light and think, did it really happen like this? And even if it did, why not tell it differently, more generously? 
Why don't I pretend even to myself? There's nobody left to know, nobody who could catch me out. I could say that she came in and took my hand in hers and looked into my eyes and said she always wanted a friend, a true friend, that she could see we were alike with twin ravaging hearts under our ribs. My dour blouse could not conceal that from her. I could say that she picked me out of everyone in the town, was drawn along the sun-bleached stone of the pavements by hunger, by instinct, where I had always stood, waiting. I could say a lot of things, but perhaps it's best to be honest now. I didn't sense her walking towards me on that chill morning, early spring. Didn't notice her opening the door to the bakery. Her hair was dark and loose, spilling over her stiff white blouse and the lace at its collar. She hung behind the other customers, looking at the loaves stacked behind me one by one as if making an important decision. The other women in the shop greeted her. Welcome, they said. We've been expecting you. She smiled at that, and I had to stop myself from brushing my hand against hers when I passed her the loaf she finally chose, but I couldn't say much to her. I was afraid of her. She thanked me and left, and through the window I saw her pause and open the paper bag for a second, as if she was considering tearing into the bread like a dog. But she didn't. She closed the bag and then was gone. I stared after her until the next customer, I don't remember who, interrupted me, impatient for their breakfast. You've seen a ghost, they joked, snapping their fingers. When I returned home later, I found my husband asleep on our bed. He slept like a baby, insensibly, with his arms thrown out. I passed my hands over his body, not quite touching, along those splayed arms and along his legs, and finally, gently, lowered my palms to his chest. He was fully dressed. I climbed onto the bed, folded myself on top of him. His breathing changed, but he refused to admit he was awake. Please, I asked him. I pressed my face into his neck. He was sweating. I wanted to put my hand over his mouth so he would stop pretending, but I knew he would rather suffocate than be caught. He kept his eyes closed. I batted at his arm, his cheeks very lightly, then less lightly, then not very lightly at all. I can admit that in those days I was sometimes jealous of the dough my husband put his hands into, worked so tenderly and tirelessly with up to the elbows. I can admit now that his bread really was the best. There was such beauty in breaking it open hot from the oven and the steam pouring out, in feeling your appetite worrying at you and knowing it would soon be sated. The astonishing fact that, living as we did in this new time of peace and plenty, we might never have to feel truly hungry again. He was on a constant mission to perfect it. He might have said it was his life's work. He might have said this not entirely seriously, but he was very serious about it. I was jealous too of the purity of his focus, the incremental moves towards one faultless loaf. But then what, when there was nothing left of the bread to improve? What then? Eat of it and be filled. Eat of it and be transformed. Eat of it and nothing changes. The almost imperceptible recalibration of our desire, our satisfaction. Try again. So I've been talking to Sophie McIntosh. We've been talking about her new novel, Cursed Bread, which is out in the UK now from Hamish Hamilton. Sophie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.